0: It is all too easy to be critical of the kind of heritage of Christianity within our country, within our culture. We have reflected often on the ways in which the church has failed in the past, in the ways in which it um, has been judgmental, it has been moralizing and uh, self-righteous in the ways that it seems to have completely failed to walk in the footsteps of Christ. But I was really challenged this week by the Archbishop of Canterbury for all people. They didn't come and see me, fortunately. I was reading an article. And he was talking about some of the positive effects that our Christian heritage has on us. And I thought actually a really good starting place tonight would be for us to think, what are the aspects of our society and our Christian heritage that we should be really grateful for? Who can think of that? <laughs> Tom went. <laughs> <laughs> education. Go on? education. Education. Can yeah. say a bit more about that? Well, it was um, the whole process of educating children as the children age was started in church. Brilliant. So actually, this thing that we take for granted about, universal education, was started off by the Sunday school movement, and they literally <coughs> provided the only education children would get by on Sundays, the one day the children weren't working they would take them to Sunday school and teach them. So education, yes, is one of the things we need to be really grateful for. Any more examples? Um, Social services. Social services. was I mean was amazing, but actually took over an awful lot of Christian charities that had been providing all of that things before nineteen fifteen. We didn't have universal healthcare, none of us um, that was a Christian project. Has anybody actually got the date from here? actually I, 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 I like it as a point. I'm not sure I can look at church history and hand on to that. concepts of justice, which is is a profoundly Christian ideal. Um, Science, despite the whole kind of conflict that we have over between science and religion in modern days, the origins of of modern science are in Christianity, because uh, it was Christianity which believed that the universe could be comprehended. And uh, the early scientists saw science as a theological pursuit. As I study the world, I am studying the world that God made. Does anybody know more, Jeremy? Time. Time. Well, that sounds nice. What does that mean? Um, it's actually Jewish-Christian, probably more Jewish than yeah. Christian, but the um, whole concept of learning time. Yeah, <coughs> the time is going somewhere. Yeah. Life is not spiraling meaninglessly, but there is a beginning and an end. Yes, it's beautiful and really, it's inherent to who we are. Um, the example that the Archbishop of Canterbury used is actually really simple, and uh, he said the parables of Jesus. So the example he used was the Good Samaritan. The idea that somewhere in our collective imagination, in our memory, is this concept of that's what it looks like to be a neighbour to someone. And you know the concept of the, the story of the Good Samaritan. this astonishing story of um, a man who gets beaten up in mud and left for dead, and all the religious people walk by, and then his enemy, the Samaritan, walks by, picks him up, puts him in a hotel, looks after him, makes him better. And the idea that we as a culture have those sort of Concepts bouncing around, it's not everybody thinks of them all the time, but they are part of our collective imagination, sets ideals of behaviour which are profoundly important. And the reason I'm saying that is because in this passage that we're looking at today (laughs) is an ideal which we I think are always in danger of taking for granted. It's an ideal of what leadership or what kingship looks like. And when I talk about ideals, I don't mean that these are things that we get right all the time, or that all kings uh, have performed. No, certainly not. But that we can actually talk about these ideals. And what's happening in the passage tonight is that we are given a contrast. And it sets up an ideal of what kingship, of what Jesus looks like as king. We're actually going to start looking at the passage before the bit we had read. Because um, the, the, the sort of shadow of Herod... Uh, the, the Roman king over uh, Israel uh, looms at this point in the story. And he's actually been there throughout the whole of the gospel, but he's sort of in the in the background like storm clouds gathering. But in this passage, you get the first crack of lightning. And you start to see the kind of danger of this man. So um, have a look at that passage again. And uh, we're just going to start with we'll, 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 sort of, the first few um, verses. Um, this is really the tragic story of the death of John the Baptist, and um, what happened was John had had a pop at Herod, uh, which was his once, he was the sort of chap who did have a pop at pretty much everybody, and all credit to him. Um, he had had a go at Herod because of Herod's behaviour, and Herod was an absolutely shocking and frankly pathetic king. And um, uh, let me maybe just read this to you, so you can get to the verse three. Uh, Herod had arrested John and bound him up and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. John had been saying to him, "It's not lawful for you to have her." Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased That he promised on an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, "Give us, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist." The king was distressed because of the oaths and the dinner guests. He ordered that her uh, request be granted and had John the Baptist be in prison. His head was brought on the platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John the ba- John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. That's the background man the be of the story of the 5,000. And it's, um, it's a grim picture of uh, this uh, figure of terror, this vindictive, violent, Pathetic, cowardly figure um, who gets uh, manipulated into doing something that he, didn't, um, he was afraid to do. Um, in actual fact, I think uh, Herodias, his wife, is the really kind of manipulative character in all of this. Uh, she, in uh, Roman history, not just in Bible stuff, is a really grim character. She was married to Herod's brother, Philip, and um, uh, he turned out not to be successful enough. Uh, he wasn't getting ahead in his Mm -hmm. political career enough. So she uh, arranged to divorce him and married his brother, who was far more successful. Um, She's not uh, an attractive character at all. And um, it's her who seems to be uh, particularly angry at John the Baptist for his uh, statements about the fact that they're married, she married her brother's husband. So he was saying that that was uh, completely inappropriate. And the other thing that's grim about the story is this strange little situation um, with her daughter dancing for Herod. Now, that's his niece. There is something grim and incestuous about everything that's going on here. And I think Matthew actually wants us to get a picture of quite how awful, distasteful, immoral, awful this situation is in order for the contrast to work properly. And then what happens is he, she does her little dance uh, the king, I don't know how drunk he is, but he sounds pretty drunk. says um, certainly can have anything you want, and she doesn't ask for a palace or a Mercedes, she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a plate. Most of the by her mother, and that's how John the Baptist does. It's a shocking grim death, the climax to an awful party, is John Baptist's head brought into the room. And so the passage that we're looking at tonight begins in that setting. That's the the bleak dark contrast. And it begins with Jesus' grief. Look at verse 13. When Jesus' work happened, and uh, heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. John Baptist is his cousin. Jesus is overwhelmed, not simply by grief because of the grim injustice of everything that's happened, because of this tragic end that this remarkable prophetic figure has come to. It's his own cousin has just been murdered. And... Um, He, rightly, withdraws to a solitary place. For those of you who have experienced grief, you'll know it's utterly debilitating. Um, It's it's like an illness. It somehow saps you of all your strength, all of your will to do anything. Certainly all of your will to care about anybody else. It seems to be a sort of very isolating process. And I think Matthew is struck by the way Jesus copes with his grief. He goes to a solitary place. He spends this day by himself. But these crowds follow him. And uh, when Jesus gets there, he sees the large crowd in verse 14. And he has compassion on them. Now that is actually a remarkable statement for a man dealing with grief. His ability to transform his own emotions into uh, uh, compassion for others is profound. And it is one of the things which marks who Jesus is. And it's the first contrast between brutal decadence of the kingship of Herod and this model of kingship that we see in Jesus. I'm I'm struck by this compassion of Jesus because it comes up time and time again. I think it is probably the primary driving force that keeps Jesus going. There are, of course, many things which he is about, But right at heart of it seems consistently to be compassion. And I think I want us to remind ourselves of that. The things which keeps Jesus going in his ministry is probably the same thing that needs to keep us going in our service of people, in our desire to love and to give, is actually caring about the people that we're serving. There's a real cost to it because genuine compassion is going to hurt. But for those of you who were part of, say, the balance soul thing we were doing a couple of weeks ago, you will know that actually the overwhelming experience was love for those kids. That yes, it was hard work. Yes, it was commitment. Yes, we had to do a lot of organising. Yes, people had to work incredibly hard. But the thing which motivates is compassion for kids who have so little. Jesus' driving force is compassion. And that compassion leads us to this famous and beautiful story in verses 15 to 21. The story is in these crowds, uh, there are, I'm afraid we say how many people there are, I don't know why we call it the feeding of 5,000, because there was way more than that there, but in a slightly know, so, we just count the men. Um, there were 5,000 plus women and children. What's that? I don't know. Uh, women up. gathered in the desert, nothing to eat, and, um, and that's where this story happens. Um, a little bit of historical context, though, starts to grasp some of the significance of it as uh, uh, a story. You know we have um, uh, stories which kind of define who we are, stories that we remember. This event would have sparked memories in all of those people's minds that they were there as it unfolded of a story of deep significance in their history. The vast crowd of people in a desert, nothing to eat. How are we going to survive? It's not going to provide. What's the historical context? We can think of the story from their history which would have resonated with this event. <laughs> yes, <laughs> all of you are right. Um, that man story from the book of Exodus, remember you've got people taken out of um, uh, Egypt, taken into the, into the desert on their way to the promised land, uh, nothing to eat, um, and God provides day by day these strange milky white flakes that they turn into bread. And you have to get the significance of that to them. Uh, you know, that's part of the story of their beginnings, of their liberation, to get the resonance with the significance of this story. It's like a, the events are happening again. And um, Uh, it would have, uh, of course, pointed to Jesus, who stands in the same place that Moses did back then. In fact, some of the Gospels make much bigger deal of the kind of politics of this event. Uh, Matthew's just kind of interested in little details, which is quite sweet. Uh, The other Gospel writers tend to pick up on the fact that um, this is clearly so much more than just a, a random gathering of people, but in their minds, this was like the new beginning. This was like leaving the old uh, world and going into the desert on their way to the promised land. And all of those things, I think, are inherent in this story. But that's not what Matthew picks up on. Matthew picks up on this theme of compassion. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 um, uh, says, As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And it's quite a sweet little moment. The disciples are actually starting to echo some of Jesus' compassion for people. They're just concerned about it. They're taking responsibility for others. And if you've been with us as we've sort of watched these disciples kind of vaguely start to mature in their understanding of what it means to be followers of Jesus, you realise this is a really big moment. For the first time, they seem to be thinking about others rather than thinking about themselves. It's a big step. And what Jesus takes is that little sort of uh, first bit of compassion that they've got and raises the game. and sort of escalates it and turns up the volume. Because in verse 16 he says, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And you can sort of imagine these disciples going, What? Um, I mean, it's like, oh, we, we, we just took responsibility for this situation and now we're in real trouble. (laughs) because <laughs> Jesus wants us to feed them. And someone fishes around in their bag and pulls out their slightly mashed pack lunch and goes, yeah, that's what we've got. I didn't have a chance to get a proper dinner together because we were in a hurry. I've got five loaves and I've got two fishes. What do you want me to do? And um, Jesus, verse 18, says, uh, bring them here to me. And then he directs the people to sit down on the grass. So of. I'm intrigued by details of this. How do you get 5,000 people to sit down? <laughs> <laughs> sit down. <laughs> sit down. <laughs> 5,000 people sit down. And then Jesus looks up to heaven, gives thanks, and starts to break the loaves. And another detail of this that I'm intrigued by is the fact, I think Matthew was there. Um, and yet, he seems to have no clue how this works. So let me just talk you through this. Five loaves. Break them in half. How do you do it? You break it in half, and you give one to the person in front of you. And then you break it in half, and you give it to the the person again. And it seems that what was happening was that this astonishing, miraculous, mysterious way by which God provides for all these people, is that that kind of never diminishes. You break the bread, you hand it. You break the bread, you hand it. And it never gets any smaller. It's like folding a piece of paper time and time again, and it keeps... But Matthew seems to have no recollection of exactly how this worked. He was probably there, he was probably handing out the bread. It's like some kind of dream sequence. exactly did that work? And suddenly you've got 5,000 people, 12,000, 20,000 people well fed, and then they collect up 12 baskets of crumbs and leftovers. The little 12 commentators pick up about the little 12 baskets thing is uh, Matthew's, um, he drops a little bit of interesting theology. I think he was just a bit struck by that. Why is that the thing that he remembers, for goodness sake? You don't know what the miracle was like. <laughs> All he remembers is maybe that's it. He sort of got to the end of it and went, what the hell's going on? Where, what's the, where did these 12 baskets come from? Come takes to pick up on the significance of these 12 baskets, ties it into the 12 tribes, picks up some of the politics and the history, but not really for Matthew. And um, yeah, that's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But there are aspects of it which I think are beautiful. The fact that Jesus asks his disciples to greater compassion. That he asks them to give what little they have. And that God transforms that into something which nourishes an entire tribe of people. And I'm not always that keen on the sort of little pietistic... Applications of these stories and what this means for us, but I don't think you can avoid it with Matthew, because I think this is what he's struck by: this request for you and I to give what little we have, even when we're completely overfaced by the needs which confront us, even when we think, "What could I give that has any will make any impact on the people, on the needs of people?" But Jesus says, "Just give." It would be so easy for the disciples to say, you know what, we've only got five of those two fishes, it's not going to make a drop in the ocean of need here, so we'll just keep it. Why bother? But Jesus says give. Give what little you have. Give out of compassion, give out of faith, give. And somehow God will transform that into something of great need it strikes me that for us, in our desire to live in this community, to serve it, our compassion for the needs of our world, we need to remember that. Because if we look at need with any kind of um, realistic sense, as the disciples started doing, you can't touch it. But if you do it with the eyes of faith, you actually say, perhaps if I just give what I can, and God can turn that into something which is actually part of his transformation of this world, the coming of his kingdom. The one thing that I wanted to finish with was just um, verse 22. I seem to spend as much time preaching not on the passage as I do on the passage, but that's okay. Somebody read out verse 22 to me. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dis- dismissed the crowd yeah just really struck by the fact that at the end of this story given all of those kind of memories of uh exodus and uh, manna in the desert the people actually were not thinking we want to go anywhere at all um that's how the exodus story worked isn't it they all went into the desert and together they traveled to the promised land whereas by contrast jesus sends them away he, he brings them he feeds them He blesses them, he has compassion on them, and then he sends them away. And it's as if he's saying that this is not the way to the promised land. But this time, it's going to be different. The kingdom of God is not like it was before in the Old Testament. I am not going to be leading you through this desert into some uh, physical promised land. And in actual fact, how this story is going to unfold is that the way to the promised land is through a very different desert. It is a very different way. He sends them away. He doesn't gather the people of God as this new nation, as this new beginning. He sends them back to their homes. And I'm struck by the fact that that's consistently what's happened throughout uh, the history of our experience of God. We always want to be kind of gathered together. We want um, the kingdom to be uh, about new beginnings and great big uh, gatherings of people and churches. But consistently what Jesus does is he sends us away. Sends us home, back to our places, back to our communities and our families to love and to serve and to be the kingdom there. Because the way to the kingdom is not like it was before. The things which I'm deeply struck by in this passage are those of compassion. Compassion being the driving force behind Jesus' ministry and the thing which he uh, calls out of each of us. The faith which gives the little that we have. For the sake of others, uh, and that those actions are blessed by God. But also, this idea of being sent away again, of going home, of getting on with the rest of our lives, waiting for the day when the kingdom will come. So, in conclusion, it's all too easy for us to think that we have nothing of worth to offer in this community or in this world. And when you're overfaced by the needs of others, It's all too easy to think. There's nothing I can do. Jesus' call to you, and I say with conviction, based on this passage, is to give what little you have. And that will be costly, and that might hurt you, but that gets to be part of God bringing in his kingdom. Of God bringing this and peace to this world of the coming of the kingdom of God. And the overarching theme is this question of the kingship of Christ. What you've had in this passage is a contrast between two kings. And all too often, the kings of this world play out along those lines of King Herod. Selfish, weak, decadent. By contrast, you are confronted with the kingship of Christ, and this is what it looks like. And what Matthew is gearing up to do is ask us to choose which king we will serve. Maybe you can start to make that choice now. (laughs) you. <laughs>